In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Betches Media presents... Madam Speaker... Madam Vice President. You want to hang out with us? You get your vaccine. Vaccine, vaccine. And so I went to Human Resources. There are some things I just can't tell you uh, on air. The Betches Sub Podcast. A woman's problem, if you will. Hello, I'm Amanda Duberman. I'm Brian Russell Smith. And this is the Betches Sub Podcast, where C-SPAN meets the group chat to help you process and laugh at the biggest topics in U.S. news and politics. Today, on this Monday, we're joined once again by Representative Eric Swalwell. He is our first three-peat guest from Congress. Very exciting. <laughs> he represents California's 15th Congressional District still and serves on the Intelligence, Judiciary, and now Homeland Security Committees. You were just saying three committees and a third baby on the way, so you got to match them one for one. And a three-peat for a guest. Yes, perfect. Yes, we like to think you did that for us. So you've got so much going on right now. Um, your book has just been released again six months after the insurrection because it applies. Your book was previously titled Endgame Inside the Impeachment of Donald J. Trump. For the new version, you got really creative with the title and got to add an S. It's now Endgame, the impeachments of Donald J. Trump. So Brian and I were just talking about this before we got going, but the insurrection and Trump's impeachment for it happened in the space of a single week, which is pretty incredible to like reflect on. That obviously must have been such an intense thing to process. Do you think putting pen to paper for this book, like, really helped you sort of process what that week and, and period was, and then ultimately the trial, all of it? It was definitely a cathartic for me to do it. It's not a book that I wanted to add to. I don't think, you know, just because writing a book is not easy, but for the sake of the country, it, it was only added to and supplemented because Donald Trump had to be impeached uh, twice. So yes, we added four chapters, and as you pointed out, an S uh, to the title. Um, you know, there was a Hemingway quote that I uh, referenced in the book from his book, The Sun Also Rises, where two characters are talking about how one of them went bankrupt. And a friend of the guy who goes bankrupt says, well, how did it happen? And the bankrupt guy said two ways, gradually and suddenly. And that's sort of how I think about, you know, how did we get to this point with Donald Trump? Um, gradually, you know, just the like slow buildup of, you know, corruption and abuses uh, and greed. And then suddenly, you know, with, you know, the inflection of uh, the insurrection. Uh, and, and so, I mean, we what, what is so interesting, uh, Amanda, was just two days before the insurrection, we were, you know, we have this chat, our group, you mentioned group chat, we kind of have a group chat among yeah. ourselves with some members in Congress. And Nice. We were talking about, should we impeach him for what he said to the Georgia Secretary of State? Do you remember that phone call yeah. that mm -hmm. had been leaked because he was calling and pressuring the Georgia 11, Secretary of State? 11,800 votes. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's all we need, just that number. And so we were having this debate in the House about, should we impeach him? Should we censure him? And it was a close call. I, I think we were moving to censuring him. And then 
ultimately, you know, ultimately the insurrection happened. And it was like, okay, if we were going to, if we were going to almost impeach him for the phone call, this isn't even close for leading Mm -hmm. and aiming a mob at the Capitol for the insurrection. So yes, gradually and suddenly, uh, you know, as it relates to Donald Trump. Yeah, it was like a progression of like, it's not so bad. It's not that bad. And then it was like, oh, it's very bad. This is bad. And that's why, you know, when you see these, these generals now coming out saying, oh, we were preparing for a coup. Right. It's like, well, you didn't prepare like enough because he tried and everything that you expected that he would do, he actually did. And so, again, yeah, I think gradually and suddenly is, is sort of uh, the theme for that presidency. Yeah. Um, and you are also a House impeachment manager in the Senate trial. And you're in you and your colleagues performances were like applauded and people thought they were very strong but the former president's lawyers were like scared like kind of scarily comical um did you expect it to be that much of like a sort of clown show on their part you mean the guy who let bill cosby off oh god (laughs) (laughs) oh god um What a career. Did you know at the time that he was the guy that let Bill Cosby yeah. off? Yeah, so yeah, of course. One of our managers, uh, Madeline Dean, uh, she is from Philadelphia. She knew his his whole backstory. And she had told us, you know, this is before the appeal was overturned um, or before the conviction was overturned. But she had said, yeah, this is the guy that gave the sweetheart wow. deal to Bill Cosby. <laughs> and we're like, of course. I mean, that fits perfectly into who Donald Trump um, would hire. But we did not expect the the screamer, um, you know, that guy, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, really couldn't read the room. And I, I don't know if you recall it. At one point he was screaming and everyone, both sides, the Republican and Democratic senators start laughing at him. <laughs> and he's like, why are you laughing at me? And it was just I don't know. It was secondhand embarrassment. Um, oh, it was rough for someone who was not worthy of secondhand embarrassment. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It was one of those where it's like I didn't even want to like show the audience. Um, right. I, I was also what was it like working in that really intense period with Representative Raskin? Um, that must have been such an intense time. I know myself and all of us were just like in awe watching your team and especially him so close to such a personal tragedy and that intense moment. What was that like? Well, I would say about Jamie Raskin is, you know, what you see is, is what you get. He's, he's not a different person uh, in private. And there are a few people I've served with in Congress, you know, who very much feel like, you know, they are, they will be regarded as historical uh, figures, but they're just normal people. But you just get a sense that you're around somebody who's very special. And I put Jamie Raskin in that league with, you know, Adam Schiff and, and Nancy Pelosi and it's almost as if, you know, history sent us the fabric of our founders for this time and, and said, you know, listen, you know, to these people. And in the book I describe, um, and I think this sums up Jamie perfectly. Minutes after the Senate vote, we went back to this side hold room where we would all convene. And, and Jamie finally just took a seat in his chair and, and we were all seated around him. And he got quite emotional and he was apologizing to us for letting us down and we were just like what like what are you talking about Jamie like you you let us you were you know the tip of the spear for this accountability you know project that we all were a part of but because he's such a good and honest person he he projected that on to the Republican senators and he thought that they would be just as good and honest about this as he was and it wasn't naivete it was just like He's from almost from a different time and a different era that he yeah. thought that they would put aside their, you know, uh, personal, 
and political preferences and do the right thing. And it turns out, you know, he is in a league of, you know, uh, rare people in politics. Yeah. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Because now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone for any occasion. And it's easy. You just tap or click Gift Mode in your Etsy app or Etsy.com and then answer a few questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated gift idea list based on hundreds of personas. Now it is simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a Mother's Day gift for the quilter or a birthday present for the vintage hunter, there is something for everyone on Etsy. Some of my favorite things to do are go to Etsy gift mode and then search absurd things like what kind of gifts do you have with Walter Cronkite on them? What kind of gifts do you have for dachshund owners? There's jewelry, ceramic, toys, board games, all kinds of fun stuff. A gifting moment is always right around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Today's episode of American Fever Dream is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick, but can't always afford the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you. It's Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for the season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription rental service, and for just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles. They also have inclusive sizing, up to 5X, as well as petite and maternity. You get fast, free shipping and returns and professional cleaning and newly state-of-the-art laundering facility. No laundry for you to worry about. This is the best. You just put it back in your box, send it out, and before you know it, you've got your next one. And you always have the option to buy what you love for sometimes up to 75% off. I bought the Rachel Antonoff pasta puffer from them. I was obsessed with it, like everybody who tries it is, and it was completely sold out everywhere else. So I felt like I really, really had an in there. So thank you, Newly. Newly is an amazing value at $98 a month for any six styles. And right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code FeverDream20. Just go to N-U-U-L-Y.com. That's newly with two U's and enter the code FeverDream20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y.com, newly with two U's with code FeverDream20. Newly subscription clothing rental, change your clothes. I feel like the past, you know, couple of weeks, we've heard about a few more Trump books, like you said. Um, we're, we're getting even more sort of drips of what was happening around the insurrection. Of course, there's still so much to learn that hopefully we can. But I mean, as a person who was in the building and you are a direct target, I mean, what does it feel like to watch things like this, like Arizona audit chief spew out the same like lethally dangerous stuff that led to that moment? I mean, is it, does anything surprise you at this point? Well, I would feel fine with it if I felt like something had changed to inoculate the country from this happening again. Maybe like yeah. if we had passed the security assistance, you know, to better fortify the capital for future national security events like counting the Electoral College votes. Um, I, I would be like, well, you know, the, they're just crazies. They can't really threaten any of us. But the truth is nothing has changed since January 6th. Like we've not, we've done nothing to pass, you know, more funding for the capital. In fact, uh, reports are out there that the Capitol Police uh, are in danger of, you know, running their funding down to zero because they're so overstretched right now. Republicans in the Senate won't pass that funding that we've passed in the House. 
Donald Trump thinks that he's coming back in August to Washington, which like side note, like who wants to be in Washington in August, by the way, that's like the worst. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, so that's so true. That's so true. He'll but, never come back. But it, all of the, the same ingredients exist, you know, for this, you know, recipe for disaster for, you know, democracy. So it very much worries me. And, and by the way, the number of Republicans who are willing to condemn this uh, is, is shrinking. Uh, and I think the best example yeah. is right after the insurrection, we did impeach Donald Trump and 10 Republicans in the House voted to convict. Just two weeks ago, we voted to have a select committee on January 6th, and only two of those 10 voted to have a select committee. So you're seeing that they're really closing ranks around Donald Trump, and we're no less, you know, we're, we're no more safe uh, than we were uh, endangered on January 6th. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find it strange that they are continuing to like protect him so much, even though he, you know, he isn't on any social media, his reach is so much smaller and even like his blog failed. So, <laughs> but like, is, does he still have that much hold over your Republican colleagues? He does. And to me, that reflects that my colleagues cannot imagine themselves getting hired outside of Congress, which is kind of mm -hmm. weird, okay. right? Because yeah. when I ran for Congress, I cashed in my pension uh, to my, the little pension that I had. Um, I spent a year plus without a job, you know, killed myself to knock on 100,000 doors to make the case for why I should do this. And I thought, I'm going to go to a place with a bunch of other people who want to work hard, sacrifice everything for the country, and could also take a hundred other jobs that probably pay a lot more. And now I find myself among this, you know, cast of characters where they think this is the only job they could get, which is crazy, right? So it's hard to think of what business would would hire Matt Gates right now. It's that's really true. hard. <laughs> that's true. Um, so when when you when you have such a lack of confidence in yourself and you feel like this is the only job you can get, then yeah, you're going to just follow the lie of the day that Donald Trump, you know, tells the country, even if it contradicts, you know, what he said a week ago, because you're afraid that he's going to come after you. And so it's a, a, it's a lack of confidence in yourself. It's a lack of imagination for what you could do outside of Congress. And of course, it's a lack of courage, you know, to do the right thing. So it, it doesn't surprise me at all, but it makes me in these times uh, think even more of Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. Uh, and again, I, and I, I think, and I get some people say, well, Liz Cheney, her votes on this and that, you know, they're so bad. But I mean, look, our democracy is on life support right now. And I, I look at this as very binary, like either you are with <laughs> trying to keep the Republic going or you are, you know, trying to pull the plug on it. And Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger are trying to keep it going and resurrect yeah. it. So I, I, I'll have the fight with them, you know, give me that, give me the problem that democracy survives and I can debate Liz Cheney over, you know, how much we should tax people. Like, give us that right. problem. Yeah. Because the problem we have right now is that democracy uh, is dying. Yeah. And you are uh, suing the former president, uh, Donald Trump, and his son, Don Jr., his personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, and Representative Mo Brooks for their role in a campaign of lies and incendiary rhetoric, which led to the sacking of the United States Capitol on January 6, 2021. Uh, why do you think that this lawsuit is necessary and important? For accountability, 
you know, I, after putting the Senate trial, uh, you know, together and reviewing hundreds of hours of video and, and you know, the uh, documents showing how much money Donald Trump had invested in emails to uh, aim the mob at Washington, D.C. on the 6th, it was $50 million in, in campaign ads that they ran in just 20 days to get people to go to that rally. It was so obvious that in, in the law, we say, but for, right? Like, but for one factor, mm-hmm. would this have happened? And I was convinced that, but for Donald Trump, you know, this would not have happened. And of course, he was aided by Brooks, Don Jr., and Rudy Giuliani. And so, you know, it's, it's principally for accountability. And, and yes, of course, I'm, I'm not naive. I recognize that if we survive this first hurdle, which is a motion to dismiss, it will allow depositions and what's called discovery, you know, the mm-hmm. act of getting information and documents from the other side. But it, it really is to seek accountability, something that Donald Trump, you know, is a stranger to in his life. Yeah. This has been quite an undertaking. And one of the major challenges has been locating Representative Mo Brooks. Have you and your investigators been able to, to serve him yet? This is such a mystery to me that he, <laughs> we have, yes, we have served him. Oh, good. Great. Uh, found Mo. But I, I, we found Mo, but what, I think he approached this like it was like a Three Stooges episode <laughs> where if he like dodged the service or if he's like, oh, you didn't get yeah. me, you didn't touch me, mm-hmm. um, I, I'm not served. Like that's actually not how it works. Um, mm-hmm. If you do that, the court will actually frown upon it. They'll make you pay for the other side having to serve you. Hey. They're probably not going to look. It, it kind of looks like you have something to hide because. Mm-hmm. Even Don Jr. and Rudy Giuliani and, and Trump were like, hey, I mean, I think they're professionals in getting served. So they're just right. like, hey, go ahead. Like here, we have a whole team that just accepts the service for the suits that right. are coming at us. <laughs> um, but yeah, so not only did Mo try and avoid service, now he's doing something really interesting. Interesting because he has spent his entire political career uh, trying to reduce the role of government. And he is asking the government to be his lawyer. So imagine that Mo Brooks wants a government lawyer uh, that he would probably vote to defund if he could. But in this Mm -hmm. case, uh, yeah, he wants a government lawyer. And he's arguing that what sort of a similar I mean, I guess maybe it's a First Amendment argument, but he's saying that what he did was in the scope of his employment as a member of Congress. So it's like the reason he should be held to a higher standard is because he's in Congress. But he's saying the reason he should be held to no standard is because he's in Congress. Yeah, that, that is correct. And he also said that had he not been invited to the rally by Donald Trump, he never would have done it. And it, it, it reminds me a lot of the uh, Dan White defense uh, in, if you recall, the, the killing of, you know, Harvey Milk and Mayor Moscone. It was kind yeah. of the, uh, the Twinkie defense. Like, you know, I, I had these yes, Twinkies, right, right. I had like a sugar rush. So like, this is the Mo Brooks Twinkie defense, which was, you know, I listened to Donald Trump he told me to do it. And so I should not be um, held responsible. But isn't it? But it's Trump and Trump Jr. that yeah. have accused you of, quote, emotional infirmities, which is very silly. <laughs> I never would have gotten yes. away with that argument from my parents. It's like, they <laughs> no. invited me. And, they, you know, like, it, so it's their fault. Like, what? No. Right. It, it really, honestly, Brian, it's like, okay, Mo, if Donald Trump told you to jump off a bridge, would you jump off the bridge? Like, that's what my parents would always say when I was a kid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be the defense. So so we're seeing now the House uh, the Select Committee investigation. Uh, what are you hoping to see come out of it? 
I really think having the officers testify will animate, you know, just how horrific that day was in and put a permanent, you know, I, I think, uh, stamp on history of what happened that day, because there's so many efforts to rewrite what happened or to erase what happened. And, and when you hear from the officers who were there, I, I think you're going to get a sense uh, that, you know, this is a day that we never want to you know, relive, uh, that it was truly hand to hand combat, you know, for hours uh, with an armed mob who was determined, you know, to kill uh, Mike Pence and Nancy Pelosi. You know, I, I had dinner with Officer Fanon a couple days before the impeachment trial started. And I, one question I had, um, because I was on the House floor, and as we were leaving the, uh, oh, sorry, one second. As we were leaving the House floor, um, I saw the mob that had amassed right outside what's called the Speaker's Gallery, just feet yeah. away from the floor. And they were smashing the glass and pounding on the door. And you could see they had, a, you know, they had weapons in their hands. And, and on our phones, we had been alerted by Capitol Police that pipe bombs were found uh, nearby. So we, we didn't know what their intent was. And so they're to our left, and we're all going to this exit route on the right. And that's where Ashley Babbitt you know, was the first to, to breach uh, what was essentially the final perimeter before the, the House floor after breaching six perimeters before. And as she did that, you know, we, we heard the gunshot as we were, you know, leaving the floor. And my question to Fanon was, had that mob gotten through and that officer not been able to, you know, save us, what would have happened? And without missing a beat, Fanon said, oh, they would have hanged all of you. And he was, he knows, I mean, he was in the crowd. He knows, you know, what they were capable of, what they wanted to do. And so to hear, you know, that Republicans describe the officer who was on that last line of defense, who was outnumbered, who knew that the mob had breached six perimeters, knew that there were pipe bombs around the facility, to say that he is an executioner um, is so dangerous I mean, it invites attacks on his life. It invites mm -hmm. attacks on his colleagues. And again, as I said, it erases what the true threat was that day. And so I, I think the officers will be important for the select committee. I also think that having as much information as you can about what was Donald Trump's mindset, what did he know about the mob that was coming to Washington and what did he know during the attack and, and what did he do? And just as importantly, what did he not do? What decisions did he decide not to make that could have saved, uh, you know, more people and, and more time for us to get back to the floor? Yeah. So to sort of turn to 2022 a little bit, I've heard you start to say refer to Republicans in this vein as an anti-police party, because that's what they're demonstrating right now and the policies that they will and won't support. How are you thinking about messaging and strategy for 2022, especially as what role do you think Trump should play in Democrats' strategy? Um, how much should we look forward? How much should we look back? How much are those two things related? I you know that's a question we've started to ask ourselves. And yeah, uh, yeah what yeah. role do you think this will play? 2022, you know, obviously run on our successes, getting the country vaccinated, getting the country reopened, stimulating the economy where it was needed the most. The child tax credit, I, I don't think we can make enough wallpaper of what it means for mm -hmm. families to have $300 additional a month 
per child. And that, you know, as someone who grew up in a family where both parents worked, four kids, my parents had not gone to college. And, and so, you know, you can imagine just the struggle that we had um, day to day trying to get us to go and be able to go to college. That would have made a huge difference uh, in our lives. And so I think as that comes up for, as that expires later this year, and there's a vote on whether to renew it or not, you're going to see who's for families and, and who's mm-hmm. against them. On the other side of the ledger, not just you know what we have done, what are the Republican policies effectively doing? I think we have to be careful not to say what they are against, mm-hmm. because sometimes you may actually help them by saying what they're against for the voter mm-hmm. who likes, you know, some sometimes for parties to be against something, right? Like I, yeah. I like that they're yeah. a party of no. I think conveying what they are for is important, right? So look at it this way: they are voting against background checks. They are voting against an assault weapons ban. Essentially, their policies are for mass shootings, right? Like when, when that's where you come from, you are a party that is enabling mass shootings. When you are voting against investing in climate infrastructure, you are for climate chaos. When you are voting against funding security at the Capitol or honoring police officers that defended the Capitol, you, know, you are dishonoring the police. And, and they do, they're brilliant at this, right? They say we're for open borders, we're for socialism, we're for defunding the police. And, and so I think just turning it a little bit and just say, what, what do your policies essentially achieve? If you're voting against voting rights, don't say they're against voting rights, say what they are actually for. They're for corruption mm-hmm. at the polls. They're for Jim Crow. And I, I think that is, is a better way, you know, to define what is really happening uh, with what uh, they are trying to do. And, and so look, Donald Trump's not on the ballot, um, but, you know, Trumpism, uh, as far as, you know, racism, misogyny, corruption, it manifests itself through who is on the ballot and, and manifests itself through Kevin McCarthy, who, you know, is the leader uh, of this party. And so, um I think they're going to have to own that. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true because it often can feel like sometimes Mitch McConnell and Republicans benefit from people like the obstructionist framing, like it's inertia, like what's the worst that could happen? They do nothing, but frame it as like, no, by doing nothing, this is what they're doing. They're, they're going to, they're going to take that money away from you now. Like, I feel like that's why Obamacare might be safe for a while because we've been able to frame it as like, they're going to take it away from you. Just try taking $300 a month away from people when they've been used to it for a year. I'd love to see them try. This is essentially social security for kids is Mm -hmm. what, the child tax credit is. And people yeah. like money. Uh, I was, you know, I, I, my Republican father was very excited that my siblings were all getting this money for their children. Um, so you can see that it's, you know, popular as well. Um, yeah, I mean, where I feel like you're an elder millennial. <laughs> a pioneer of the millennial. A pioneer millennial. You're about to have your third Lewis kid. I can't even yeah. have my first yeah. because I'm like, it's too much money. But I mean, this, as we've heard in the recent years, like our months, even the birth rate is plummeting because we can't afford kids. And if this is the family party, I look forward to hearing them explain how they're going to, how to take food from kids. <laughs> That's exactly right. And, and again, it's, it's going to, you know, cut child poverty in half, but it's not only a policy that helps those in poverty. And, and I think it's important that we, you know, convey that, that, you, you know, you're talking about, you know, 30 plus million families uh, that are going to benefit uh, from this. I mean, it, it's going to make a big difference uh, in yeah. America. 
And a lot, a lot of people will be able to rejoin the workforce because of this. Um, That's right. That's right. You know, there was, and by the way, the, the unemployment benefit that we've given, um, I've heard a lot of folks, you know, complain about, well, I, I can't get people to come back to work. Democrats are paying people to stay home. And I saw, I think it was a New Yorker cartoon that best summed this up. It was a, you know, two businesses had like a a hiring table next to each other. And one essentially said, we're paying minimum wage and no one was in that line. And the other said like, we're paying $18 an hour. And the line was like wrapped around the block. And as I've gone across the country, you know, I've, I've seen, especially in the service industry, you know, big signs in front of companies, you know, offering signing bonuses and, and, and wages that are way above the minimum wage. And, and so I think the American worker is saying, you know, look, we're, we're worth more uh, mm-hmm. right now, you know, than the minimum wage. And I, I think it's also a bad policy for Republicans to call the American worker lazy. I, I think they just happen to value themselves more and greater than Republicans think that they should be valued. Yeah. If you've ever tried to access a government benefit, laziness is not a quality that helps you do that. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> if right. If you've ever needed That's help exactly. with anything, it's anything like that. I want to also talk a little bit about vaccinations because we've seen some really alarming. I mean, we've seen it's alarming trends we've seen for a while, but I guess we're at this point where your colleagues, again, have like failed to intervene. There are a couple. I mean, Mitt Romney, you can usually count on. He is one person in Congress who is saying it's it's just moronic not to tout vaccines. You're around these people. Presumably they are vaccinated or some of them won't won't say it. But have you been surprised? I mean, I keep asking, have you been surprised? But like in your view, is this anything less than like a political move to just let this misinformation go out there and for people to associate freedom with Republicans? I would bet my house and what little savings that I have that 90 percent of my colleagues are vaccinated. Yeah. Although when asked by this, you know, when asked by press outlets, only 50% of Republicans in the House are willing to say they're vaccinated. Mm-hmm. I, I bet it's closer to 90, which is just sickening. But the, the real issue is not whether they are vaccinated or not. Um, I, yeah. I think that the real issue is, you know, whether, you know, the unvaccinated, like what will it take for the unvaccinated to get vaccinated? And, and I have really tried to resist, you know, lecturing or insulting them or shaming them. And, and I get why it's so tempting to do that. And and it's so maddening to see these new variants form and that LA is back to a mask mandate. And the American Pediatric Association today said that every child in school is going to have to wear masks. And it just feels like we're going backward. But I'm I'm at this point just going to double down and, and say to anyone who is not vaccinated, please, the most important person you can talk to, uh, is the scientist or doctor that you trust. And, um, it just so happens that 99.9% of them are going to tell you uh, to get vaccinated and that it's safe, uh, it's efficient, and it's far better than risking your life or the lives of those you love to get COVID. And, and, and you know, we've got a, a, a friend in our family that we've you know, tried to do that with. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, you know, it, it can be frustrating that someone would not get vaccinated, but we just keep trying to put as much information in front of that person uh, as possible and, and hope that they make the right decision. Because I, I just think that people naturally are, def- you know, 
if you lecture them or yeah. shame them, the natural human tendency is to dig in and be defensive. And we just don't have time for that. Now, I will say, I happen to think that if we are going to continue to see low vac- vaccination rates in, in many of these states, um, everything should be on the table as far as, you know, have, like requiring yeah. being vaccinated to fly, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think that's unreasonable yeah. at all to say that you need to be vaccinated uh, to fly. And so maybe it's a carrot and st- rather than mm-hmm. a carrot. Yeah. A, a stick approach, like a carrot and stick approach. Okay, if you, if you don't want to get vaccinated, I'm sorry, you cannot get on an airplane and travel with your, you know, potential virus and expose a new part of the country. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, because I feel like 70 percent of the time that person's going to want to go on that trip. And that like <laughs> they, nobody has really good reasons for not getting vaccinated, like 90 percent of people. So they just need a slightly better one for some people. That was beers for some people. That's a lottery. But yeah, I guess it is alarming in some places. We definitely the carrots aren't aren't really working as well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So we're about uh, seven months into this new administration, and there's a lot of talk of bipartisanship. Um, Do you find that it's gotten better or worse since this since this new administration has started or um, I don't know, better or worse? And how important is it for things to be bipartisan? I think we just naturally it's better when we all, you know, if, if we're all sitting around with a bunch of friends and family and it's dinner time and, you know, we want to order something, it's better if we all could like reach a consensus, right. Yeah. And, and say, Oh, great. We all agree on pizza rather than, you know, bickering about it. And like, you have, you know, something that's more expensive and everyone is like eating something different in a corner, like not to like trivialize yeah. it. It's, it's always better. I think if there's consensus, but in, in this case, if you have a party where Mitch McConnell again is saying his goal is to essentially, you know, bring this country to gridlock, to not work with the Democrats at all, to have the filibuster as a backstop against any progress. And then you see in this infrastructure bill, it's like Lucy with the football where, Mm -hmm. you know, every time we think there's a deal, they, they keep backing away the Republicans on what they're willing to do. I mean, at some point, you know, you have to do what's for the good of the country. And, and bipartisanship in Congress is not the same as what is generally conce- what is generally yes, right. accepted yes, right. and has consensus among Republican and Democratic Americans, right? And, and so we see like the For the People Act is popular among 70 plus percent Americans. That's, you know, the voting rights reforms, background checks, popular among 90 percent Americans. And so just because a majority of Republicans in Congress don't want background checks, it would be a mistake to say we need to get the most unreasonable to want it when reasonable everyday Republican Americans say, well, of course, you should have to go through a background check to buy a gun. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's yeah. it's important as a starting point, but um, I, I don't think it defines success if you end up not having it when you genuinely and sincerely tried to achieve it. Right. It's like, I think we say it's like putting like pineapple on the whole pizza because Republicans in Congress want it. It's like, no, no, no. Put it on one slice. You don't, yeah, you yeah, don't yeah, exactly. not, half the pizza does not have to be pineapple. That's not what the people want. <laughs> I like that even better than my pizza example. Well, yeah. they work together. They work in, in harmony. Thank you yeah. again so much for your time. Again, check out the of updated course. version of Endgame inside the impeachments of Donald J. Trump. Um, we're so excited for uh, for your family. Stay well. Until the end of democracy, I'm Amanda Duberman. I'm Brian Russell Smith. 
And this is the Betches Up Podcast. Bye. The Betches Sub Podcast is produced by Amanda Duberman, Jorge Morales-Pico, and Sean Kilby. Editing by Jorge Morales-Pico. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Be sure to follow at Betches underscore Sup on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send us your emails to suppod at Betches.com. Betches.